Amen. So how about you? Have you had a busy week? Do you have anything uh, you just need to lay down? Not on the benches, but just, you know, symbolically. Just lay down for a little while this morning. Just, Just set that thing aside. Because when we come together in this place, in our equipping service, you know, the big thing that we're doing here is we're looking at God's Word. I mean, think about this. God wrote a book. How awesome is that? That we, when we wonder, what does God think? What would God say? What, what, what does God say about me? We can actually pick this up and read what God says for himself. And of course, if God wrote this book, then every word is important. But depending on the printing that you have, uh, like in this one, the words of Jesus are printed in red letters. Because there is just something uniquely special about the fact that God was here in the flesh. And the things he said that, that we see printed in these red letters, that was God in the flesh using a lower jaw, just like you and I do. He had a tongue of his very own to form those words, vocal cords to push them out through his mouth. And the people around God in the flesh, the God-man Jesus Christ, could hear the sound waves that came out of his mouth and into their eardrums, and literally the word of God would enter into their minds that it might sink into their hearts. That's what we're doing here when we gather together to study God's word, to hear it, to say, God, speak, we want to listen. But we don't just want to hear it and then close the book and put it away and go home, right? Right? We want the red letters to become red letters. That we don't just see them and put them away. That we don't just hear them and forget about them. But that we really read them. We really understand them. Because then what happens is, we can be red letters. When we respond to the red letters, our lives become correspondence from God. Messages from God to the people around us. We become like a letter that God has written to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family. We become red letters when we respond to what Jesus actually says in the red letters. So as we continue our journey through Luke, we're in chapter 7 this week, and that's what we want to see is some of these things that Jesus himself said when he was here. In his three years of ministry, in these few pages, and you know, at the end of John's gospel, he comments that if they wrote everything that Jesus did... He supposes all the books in the world wouldn't hold it. And yet we have this book with things that were straight out of his mouth. And so we want to jump back into chapter 7. And we're looking at verse 20. Because we've actually come as far as 23. But we want to back up a few verses. Because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, when we last were in Luke, John the Baptist was in prison. Now, he was a man who had spoken faithfully of who Jesus was. He had called many people to repentance, to baptism, to point them towards the Messiah. And he thought that the Messiah was going to be a conquering king. And he's right, but he had the timing a little bit off. He thought that here and now was probably when the Messiah was going to overthrow the enemy, finally bring judgment, and we'd all go to paradise. And instead, this man who used to live out in the wilderness and the wide open spaces is stuck in the basement prison of a castle that Herod built on a man-made mountain. And he has a little bit of doubt. Is Jesus really who I think he is? 
And so he sends these messengers to Jesus. In, in verse 20, it says, When the men had come to him, and they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Is it really you? Are you really God in the flesh? Can you really do what only God can do? And notice this. The first thing Jesus does is, is actually not to speak a word. It's sort of like a show and then tell. At that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus demonstrates and then Jesus speaks for himself exactly who he is. That he is doing things that only God can do. Yes, John, I am the Messiah. I am who I say that I am. I think this is so fascinating because he doesn't say a word to John about his circumstances. In fact, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Chad pointed out for us how Jesus was quoting an Old Testament passage and specifically left out the part about captives being set free. You see, when John was facing doubt, the thing that Jesus knew he needed, the one thing that John needed more than anything else, was to know exactly who Jesus is. If we're going to respond to that, then we've got to hear Jesus speak for himself. I was at a, a doctor a couple of years ago, and I, I don't know how these things happen, because I promise you, he started it. But it turns out, uh, he, he was Jewish, and somehow we end up talking about Jesus. And I know, like, oh, well, you're a pastor, that probably happens. No, it seriously doesn't. He started it, and I, and I don't remember how. But we're talking about Jesus, and he's telling me why he doesn't think that Jesus could really be the Messiah. It was so fascinating to me, because it had nothing to do with prophecies that he thought Jesus didn't fulfill. It had nothing to do with how he didn't conquer Rome. It, had, it just had nothing to do with anything in the Old or New Testament. When I asked him why not, he said... Well, because the people who say they like Jesus don't act very much like Jesus. Hmm. Right? So, follower of Christ here this morning, brother, sister, there's a warning in there for us, isn't there? Right? This, is, this is the truth, that our lives are red letters. People are reading us. And if we say, well, this is what I believe about God, and this is what I believe about Jesus, and this is how he forgives, and this is how he redeems, and this is how he transforms, and we say it, but it's not reflected in our lives, people read that. And that tells them they think something about God, when really it should just tell them something about me, right? And so there's a piece of that that is like, wow, I got to really think about the way that I live my life as a testimony for God. But the other thing that I said to him at that time was, you know, if you're going to reject somebody, because all of us are, are hypocrites at some time or another. As hard as we try, there are times where all of us say one thing and do another. Right? We need to confess that. You know, we need repentance for that. We need forgiveness for that. But what I encouraged him was, you don't want to reject Jesus based on what somebody else says or does. Let Jesus speak for himself. Right? So maybe I should love my neighbor better, but it's not Jesus' fault if I don't. Right? If I come back to Jesus' own words, who does he, says that he, who does he say that he is? 
What does Jesus say for himself? And that's what Jesus gave John in his moment of doubt. You know, the moment is, is similar in a lot of ways to the moment that the man we call Doubting Thomas had. And I think in both cases, there's something really interesting that Jesus understands their doubt. He shows kindness in their doubt, but he absolutely does not leave them in their doubt. There is no part of God that says, you're struggling with doubt? Hey, I I understand. No, in both places, he says, I understand. And there's almost this sense like, and I shouldn't have to do this, but because I love you, I will. He performs miracles and says, go tell John what you've seen. For Thomas, he says, touch my hands. Feel where the nails went through. Feel the hole in my side where the spear went through. It's a gift to Thomas. It's a gift to John. He leaves John in prison, but he doesn't leave him in his doubt. I don't know if you have those moments, even those seasons, where you doubt like John did. Maybe you question God. I know a lot of times for me, it, it, it triggers because I question myself, and then we reflect that back to God. Is, is he really in control if this is happening around me? Can he really forgive us for the things he says he can? Can he really change me? Can he really renew my mind? Can I really trust him in this situation or for that person? Well, I would encourage you that I think in your moments of doubt, he does not want to leave you there. In fact, I've had times where... where and you may have been here too. It's, it's more than just, I've got a question. It's, I'm actually failing to trust him. And sometimes that just starts with me having to say, God, I, I confess that I am not trusting you in this place, in this way, for that person, for myself. Let me hear your truth again. Let me pick up what you actually say. Who you tell me that you are. You know, that's one reason that, that the equipping service that you're sitting in right now is such a critical part of what we do here at Horizon. Because we don't just want to learn about the Bible. We want to learn the Bible. Right? And, and it's not just that we want to teach you. The idea is that when we come in this place, we're all learning together how we dig into this book to understand better who God is and what he says as we explore him in these environments. You know, that's why we have study groups too. And, and one of the things I love about study groups is, is I can go in there and even if you've read the whole thing, unless you have like a beautiful mind, you probably can't keep the whole thing in your head all at the same time, right? So I'm sitting in, in a group with somebody and I'm like, oh, you know what? I really love Isaiah 55 because that's just one of my favorites. I've been in there a lot. And somebody else says, oh yeah, like in Isaiah 40. I don't know. Oh my word, you're right. <laughs> And you just get that amazing privilege of seeing how God's word comes together through other people who are studying it with you. We've got groups right now. There's a group of women going through a study called Seamless and a group of guys going through a study called Fast Track. And both of those are like a a rapid fire seven week study to give an opportunity to see like the big picture of this entire book. Because God wrote a book so that we would know what he says. That we get the joy of discovering what is in here. And so that's what he gives John. He says, I want you to know exactly who I am. Hear what Jesus says for himself in the red letters. Then in verse 24, it says that when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. All right, so John doesn't get to hear this part. 
right? All John was given was, I am who I say I am from Jesus. But now he turns to everybody else and he says, and I want to make sure you know who John is too. Lest you think he's a failure because he's in prison. Lest you think he's a failure because of a moment of doubt. Let me tell you about John because you should already know. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, of course not. John was not shaken by anything. He stood firm on God's word to the point that he's in prison for it. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Well, no. John was wearing camel hair and eating bugs. (laughs) Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. You see, this picture is of the king's court. Herod built a mountain and then built a castle on top of it, but John is not in the king's court. He's in the basement chained to a wall for what he believed was true about God. But this is John's life becoming a red letter. This is John's life becoming a message to us. And in verse 27, we discover what Jesus says about John, and that helps you discover what Jesus says about you. So if we begin by understanding what Jesus says about himself, then what comes next is what does Jesus say about you? And so watch this glowing endorsement of John. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now in those words that you see in italics, Jesus is actually quoting two different prophecies. One from Isaiah 40, verse 3. One from Malachi 3, 1. Both of these were from hundreds of years earlier, proclaiming that there would be a man, a prophet, who would come immediately before the Messiah. A man who would prepare the way for him by softening hearts through a message of repentance so that they would be able to hear the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, the obedience that would come in the kingdom as people followed Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus is telling his audience, you know these prophecies, and I'm telling you, that man is John. And among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now think about this, because if you remember all the way back, several months ago in Luke chapter 1, When John was mere moments old, his father held him. Filled with the Holy Spirit, his father prophesied over John that this little baby would grow up to be that man. The one who prepared the way for the Lord. The one who would give knowledge of salvation. That they were going to be saved. Not by defeating the Roman Empire. Not by living up to the law perfectly but through the forgiveness of sins by the tender mercy of God. This is the message that John uniquely would carry, that the Messiah was here. It says he was the greatest prophet, and yet you notice Jesus doesn't say a word about his speaking ability, his speaking technique, nothing about numbers or how many people he drew in. In fact, everything that's important about John is because of how he's related to Jesus. In fact, the the gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 41, says that John the Baptist did no sign. Never performed a miracle. He never parted the waters like Moses did. He never interpreted dreams like Daniel did. He never raised the dead like Elisha. He never called down fire from heaven like Elijah. 
For all of the prophets who had spoken so many words from God and seen miraculous things happen, John never did any of that. And yet it says there is no greater prophet than John. Why? Because of all of the prophets of the Most High God, John alone could look over the horizon, see a man walking towards him, and with his own finger point and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. That's who we've been singing about this morning. When we say that his name is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's powerful. When he was born, the angel said his name is Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. And John points to him. Well, that's very nice for John. How does that help me? How does that help you discover what he says about you? Look again at verse 28 and watch the rest of what Jesus says. Same sentence. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Brother and sister in Christ, hear these words this morning. If you're a follower of Christ if he has brought you into the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in as our king, Jesus says you are greater than the greatest prophet. You feel that way this morning? Like when we're done here, we'll all greet each other on the way out. Hey, I just want you to know, I think you are greater than John the Baptist. (laughs) It sounds strange, doesn't it? So so how is this possible? What, What is he really saying here? Well, it helps me to think about it like this. Sports fans, this might help you too. Everybody else, come back in 30 seconds. Because <laughs> we have these, these debates, right? Who's greater, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Now, come on, it's not really a debate, right? It's Michael. But depending who you talk to, that always comes back to, well, you can't really compare. They're from two different eras, right? And if you're from, like, one generation earlier than that, you might still be talking about Michael Jordan or Wilt Chamberlain. Well, you can't really compare. They're from different eras. Or today in football, it's, Who's the greatest quarterback ever? Is it Tom Brady or is it Joe Montana? Well, you can't really compare. They're from different eras. The game has changed. Well, here's what I think Jesus is telling us. The game has changed, but it's kind of the opposite. Because it's it's not that we're better than John, but it's that we're from a different era. We have more clarity about Jesus Christ and about God's plan than John did. See, John came with a message of repentance a message of judgment to warn people that they needed to get right with God and that the only way to do it was was not fulfilling the law but was turning away from the things that are broken in our lives and turning back to God to repair that relationship with him. But even so, John knew the Messiah was coming but he didn't know the whole story. Even Jesus' own disciples when we celebrated a week ago like Good Friday, there's Words in this book that say they still didn't understand that he had to die, that he had to rise again. Even though Jesus continued to tell them, wait, 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 it has to happen this way. This is the plan and it has been the plan all along. And so the way that we are greater in John is not because we're so much better than him, but it's because we have more clarity than he did. He knew of the Messiah's life. 
But we know of his death. We know of his resurrection. And we know that he's coming back. In 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way. I delivered to you, first of all, the most important thing, that which I also received, that Christ died. John knew nothing of this. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried, really dead, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's what we celebrated last week, isn't it? If you were here and we come in this place to talk about Easter, egg hunts are fun, right? But the celebration is that the king of heaven came to this place to tell me and you that he loves us so much. He will die for us and he will not stay dead. Christ is risen indeed. We celebrate it on Easter Sunday and it is true every day. And we have this message. As much as John was a messenger and his life was a message, we have even more of the story. That our message is one not only of repentance, but of forgiveness. Not only of forgiveness, but redemption. And the return of Jesus Christ. That John was unique in his time because the Holy Spirit came on him to bring his message. Follower of Christ here this morning, the New Testament tells you that if you are in Christ... He gives you his spirit, and his spirit is a seal over your eternity. We have a message to share with the world around us that needs that message more than anything else. So we become God's correspondents by responding to what Jesus says. We become messengers, and our lives become messages In fact, in verse 29, after saying all of this, you see how this is actually happening right before their eyes. When all the people had heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. Now, how would you like to be in that group? (laughs) Like when somebody really needs to make a strong point that there are people out there who are so messed up that if even they believe, there really must be something going on here. But that's who these tax collectors are, and, and basically because... Everybody knew their sin, right? We talked about tax collectors before, the fact that they come to the door, they knock on the door, they say, time for taxes, whether it is or not. They charge you what you owe, and then they add like double to it because they're going to keep some for themselves. So everybody knows who these guys are. Nobody likes them, and they all have a good reason why. And then it says, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what is going on here? There's this strange word in the middle of there that the tax collectors justified God. Now when we use that word colloquially, we usually mean something like, stop trying to justify yourself. Right? You, You do something wrong and you're trying to make an excuse and yeah, yeah, stop trying to justify yourself. When we use that word theologically, it's usually coming from the other direction, right? God justifies us. So what does that word mean? Well, think about it this way. When God justifies us, what he's saying is, you have done things wrong. You are not pure. You are not holy. You are not right with me. But I'm God, and it's up to me, and so I declare you righteous. I call you right with me. It actually works the other way around too. 
the tax collectors declare God righteous. The tax collectors declare the rightness of God. Now, they don't give it to him like God gives it to us because God has it in himself, but they declare it to the people around him. Essentially saying, you know what, God? You're right. And not only do they say it, but their lives show it. You see, these could very well be the same tax collectors that we met in chapter 3 when John stood by the river baptizing people, calling out a message of repentance, and says the tax collectors came to him and said, so what do we do? And he told them, essentially, go and sin no more. Only take what is allotted to you. Only collect the taxes. Don't get all that extra stuff. Well, now imagine that this is several months, a couple years later, And now you're in this crowd, and you see those same tax collectors, and they're going to say, he's right. God is who he says he is. He can change lives. I'm proof. Isn't that our tax collector? I know that guy. Now, what if the day before that, he ripped you off again? I'm not so sure that uh, your, your God really is doing all that much. But what if you've known that guy for 10 years and every time he came to your house, he ripped you off, except the last two times he only took what the bill said on it. And you didn't didn't know why, but you kind of wondered what what was different. And now you hear him say, I got baptized. God changed me. Really? I might have to look into that. (laughs) Because it's certainly working out better for my tax bill. Maybe it'll work out better for my life too. You see, their lives prove God right. They justify God. Our lives can be the same way. Because you know what? All of us are tax collectors. All of us are Pharisees. See, the Pharisees rejected the will of God, and really the only difference there was that they didn't respond the right way. When John called for repentance, the tax collectors realized, God, you're right about me. You're right that there are things that I need to confess. There are things that I need to repent from. There are things that need to change in my life. Guys, we've got to do this. This is hard, but this is how our hearts become responsive to God. When we're willing to say, God, you're right. God, you are righteous and there is no impurity in you and you're right about my anger. You're right about my gossip. God, you are right about my lust. You are right about my pride. You are right about the way that I've treated my husband, the way that I've treated my wife. You're right about the things that I've said around, about the people around me, behind their back. God, you're, you're right about all of it. God, I declare you right. I mean, that's, that's confession. Coming before God and saying the same thing as God about my sin that he says about my sin. Even being able to say, God, you're right about the fact that I can't justify myself. That all the good I try to do to make up for all the bad I've done can never make up for it. That I need a forgiver. You're right, God. Then we read things like Romans chapter 3 tells us that that's exactly why Jesus was here. That through his death and resurrection, God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
That's one of my favorite things in like all of Romans. In fact, if, if you want to dig into God's word this week, here's your special assignment. Read Romans 3 through 5. Just over and over and soak this idea of justification in. Because when it says that he is just, well, if he is just, he should punish our sin to the absolute uttermost. That would be justice. So how can he forgive us and let us have eternal life? Because he's also the justifier. And he has punished our sin to the absolute uttermost in the person of Jesus Christ, who is king and who brings this kingdom and who says John was the greatest prophet that pointed to the kingdom. But if you're a follower of Christ, you are a son and daughter of the king, a prince a princess in the kingdom of heaven. And just like these tax collectors, your life becomes a message to the people around you. You know, there are a lot of stories like that, but, but one that uh, has been especially powerful for me, I guess you could call him a modern-day tax collector, is Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly is the Hall of Fame quarterback of the Buffalo Bills. This is my autograph, Jim Kelly helmet. And after service, it's not going to be behind that chair, so don't you try to take it. <laughs> Jim Kelly is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And as a Bills fan, he's our greatest quarterback of all time. And I remember as a kid just idolizing Jim Kelly. Like, if I could grow up and be like Jim, how awesome would that be to throw a football like that, to have that kind of success, to, to, to play for the Bills? Right, what I didn't know, honestly, just like me, just like you, but Jim Kelly was a tax collector too. Jim Kelly had stuff broken in his life. In fact, apparently he was a jerk to a lot of guys in the locker room. He had major issues with pride. In fact, when, little known story, when we drafted him, he actually went to play for the New Jersey Generals in like the B League for a few years because he didn't want to go to some crummy town like Buffalo. Well, we forgive him for that because he took us to multiple Super Bowls later. <laughs> but he had major pride issues. He cheated on his wife. And when, they, when their son was born, you see in this picture his wife and his daughters. When his son was born, he was born with a very rare disease called Crabbe leukodystrophy. And he was only supposed to live five months. And I think he ended, living up, ended up living seven or eight years. But when Jim found out about that, that he would never be able to throw the football with his son, that his son was going to die, he believed in God just enough to hate him. Just enough to be angry at God. But an interesting thing happened because during Jim's playing days, the backup quarterback was a man named Frank Reich. He's now the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And Frank happened to be a Christ follower. And Frank believed that his life was meant to be a message to his friends, his neighbors, to the people around him. In fact, Jim's wife, Jill, on the right side, also became a follower of Christ. And even his son Hunter, before he died, became a follower of Christ. All of them believed that their lives were messages from God to Jim, which made him even angrier. Because if Jesus is real, then why is this still happening to our family? But over time, he began to see the kind of hope, the kind of faith, the kind of trust they had, even when they were facing these difficult things. And I can tell you, 
with joy today that Jim Kelly is also a follower of Christ. Now, as a Bills fan, how cool to think that I'll get to see Jim Kelly in heaven. (laughs) But now he's facing his own life-threatening battle with cancer. And it's so amazing to see how differently he responds because now he only talks about faith. He only talks about eternity. He only talks about God's protection. In fact, this is something that his wife, Jill, wrote uh, just about a month ago when they found out he was going, uh, that his cancer was back and he needed more surgery. She wrote, The more life and heartbreak I experience, the more I realize that this is not the end of the story. Because we know that our eternity is secure in Christ, we can trust God with every breath upon this earth. And Jim will tell you today how God has changed him, how God has restored his relationship with his family, with his wife, and with God himself. See, the tax collectors understood that, but the Pharisees did not. So how was Jesus going to get through to them? I I love this because at, at the end of this passage, Jesus actually uses pop culture to try to get through to the Pharisees who had rejected this message. Look at what he says in verse 31. The Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you. And you did not weep. Now on the face of it, it's like, well, it's in italics. That must mean he's quoting the Bible or something, right? Oh, but there's no footnote. I mean, that's got to be mourning, maybe like lamentations or... You won't find it in here because, in fact, Jesus is teaching them out of Aesop's fables. No kidding. There's a story about a fisherman who played the flute. And I'll read it to you, because these are short. There was once a fisherman who enjoyed playing on the flute as much as he did fishing. He sat down on the riverbank and played a happy tune, hoping that the fish would be attracted and jump ashore and dance for him. When nothing happened, he took a casting net, threw it into the water, and soon drew it forth, filled with fish. Then, as the fish danced and flopped about in the net on the shore... The fisherman shook his head and said, Since you would not dance when I played the flute, I will have none of your dancing now. Jesus is teaching them from Aesop's fables. Now, he might not use all of them, but what he realizes, and and if you look at this in antiquity, all of the classical scholars understand that this parable is about the idea that there are times when we just don't respond the right way. That they had had a golden opportunity from the message of John, right? He he came with mourning. He came with fire and brimstone, repentance and judgment, a warning from God, and they didn't respond. So Jesus came playing the flute with love and mercy and forgiveness, and they didn't respond to that either. But I love the fact that Jesus says, you know what then? I'll take something you're already familiar with, because I can use that to try to snap you out of it, to help you realize that you've missed something because they would know when they hear this story, he's telling us we're not responding the right way. So what are we missing? To give them another chance to explore God and have an opportunity to respond. I told you, uh, the core of our equipping service is that we get to read God's word. We study it together, word by word, verse by verse. Well, this what Jesus just did? Uh, That's basically the core of our exploring service. Jesus used classical literature to help the people around him have an opportunity to explore God and respond to him the right way. 
We did not time this, but it just so happens that right now, in the Exploring Service, we're doing a series called Plotline, where we are using classical literature. (laughs) Today is Peter Pan to help people explore God in a comfortable environment and have, have the opportunity to respond the right way. Right from Jesus' own ministry. Then he summarizes this way, verse 33. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. Right? So John came kind of harsh, and they didn't listen. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton, which is not true, and a wine-bibber, which is not true, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hey, that one's true. You see, this is what Jesus says about you. If you always look at yourself in yourself, you'll only ever see a tax collector or a sinner. But if you look at yourself in Christ, if you hear what he says about you, he says you're forgiven. He says you're redeemed. And he says you've got a message to bring to the people around you. So we become God's correspondents when we respond to what Jesus says. So I'd encourage you as we close this morning to think and to pray Where might your heart be unresponsive? Perhaps like a Pharisee thinking, what do I need to repent for? I I pretty much do mostly good things. Are there places in your heart where God says, give that to me? Realize, agree with me, tell me that I'm right about this. Declare my rightness in this situation and, and turn it over to me. Confess, repent, and come back. Or maybe there's an opportunity that God is giving you. You've just been a little afraid to take it. Maybe there's a position, a place that you're in uniquely. Because ever since I found out about this story, about Jim Kelly and Frank Reich, I thought to myself how incredible it was that Frank Reich was in a place that I would never be. I suppose there's still a chance, but the odds are low that I will ever be the backup quarterback for the Buffalo Bills and sit in that locker room and have a chance to speak truth to Jim Kelly. But Frank could. Jill could. Hunter could. What about you? What floor is your office on? Who do you meet when you go on that business trip? Who are your siblings, your cousins, your friends, your neighbors, because you live next door to them, and I don't. I might live next door to somebody else, and there's an opportunity that I may uniquely have, unlike anybody else. That you have an opportunity to bring this message to your friends and neighbors. Maybe even to invite them into an exploring service to see how culture can help introduce them back to the God who created them. We become God's correspondents when we respond to what Jesus says. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, by his wonderful name, his powerful name, his glorious name, his beautiful name, Christ, for everything that you have done for us and the sacrifice you made and the resurrection and the return that we know is coming, we just give you glory. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to be responsive to you, that we would turn over to you the things that you want us to turn over, that we would follow you faithfully and that we might use our lives as messages for you that more people would have a chance to explore you and to respond. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Thank you for being here this week. We'll see you next week for more Red Letters.